Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. Thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration, we covered the tumultuous events that occurred in Japan between 1863 and 1866. There was quite a bit that happened during this time, so I'll try to keep the recap as brief as possible. In episode 2 of this series, we witnessed the humiliating defeats of the Choshu and Satsuma domains by the Western powers in 1863. Their defeat led to a widespread realization across Japan that the idea of Sono Joy, or expelling the barbarians in order to honor the emperor, was not exactly feasible as currently conceived of. Instead, now, most advocates of Sono Joy turn to a different paradigm, that of Fukoku Kyohei, enrich the country and strengthen the army. Nearly everyone, supporters of the emperor and the shogun alike, recognize that at the present moment, a war with the foreign powers would be essentially committing national suicide. In order to expel the barbarians, Japan needed to modernize, and fast, if it hoped to stand a chance against the Western powers in an outright war. That is, everyone except the radical imperial loyalists in Choshu. Despite having been dealt a serious defeat by the Western powers at the Third Battle of Shimonoseki, the radicals of Choshu doubled down on their pro-imperial, anti-foreigner stance. Following the bombardment of Shimonoseki, the radicals of Choshu defeated the conservatives of the domain for control of the government in a brief civil war. With the new government in Choshu becoming increasingly hostile to the Bakufu, the central government of the shogunate by the day, the Bakufu decided to take action to punish Choshu for its insolence. A call went out to all the domains, requesting armies to fight a punitive campaign against Choshu. This move worried Satsuma, the Bakufu's heretofore ally, greatly. The leadership of Satsuma saw the Choshu campaign as a power play by the Bakufu, and they were worried about the prospect of the Bakufu turning on them once they were finished with Choshu. This led Satsuma to form an alliance with their erstwhile rivals in Choshu. The terms of the alliance were hammered out in March of 1866, and they were as follows. Firstly, Choshu and Satsuma agreed not to fight against one another, and to come to each other's aid in the event of aggression by the shogunate. Second, Satsuma would do its utmost to secure an imperial pardon for Choshu to clear its name of the false charges of treason that were levied against it. Third, the two domains agreed to cooperate with one another in the grand project of imperial restoration. This alliance was beneficial to Choshu almost immediately as, thanks to Satsuma, they were able to secure a large quantity of modern weapons in advance of the shogunate's expedition. Thanks to these developments, Choshu was able to fight off the shogunate forces with great ease, when they launched their punitive campaign in June 1866. The untimely death of the young shogun, Tokugawa Iemochi, in August of that year, pushed the shogunate closer to the brink of defeat. The first act of his successor, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, was to call off the campaign entirely. The failure of the shogunate forces to secure what should have been an easy victory over Choshu exposed the weaknesses of the bakufu before the entire country. Across Japan, anti-Bakufu sentiment was on the rise, exacerbated by the ongoing foreign crisis. Concurrent to the announcement of the second Choshu expedition, the foreign powers, Britain chief among them, had been applying great pressure on the imperial court in Kyoto to ratify the unequal treaties signed between Japan and the foreign powers in the previous decade, under the threat of war. The Bakufu's military actions against Choshu were seen as endangering national unity, in a moment where Japan had to stand united against the foreign menace. In the major cities, anti-Bakufu riots were staged, 
and in the countrysides, peasants revolted against the central government. Even in the shogunate's capital of Edo, according to one report, quote, merchants and the humblest classes have flouted the law, showing no respect to the Bakufu's authority. Everywhere was heard the rallying cry of Tobaku, or down with the Bakufu, end quote. For his part, the new shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, recognized that the days of the Bakufu were numbered. For this reason, he was reluctant to accept the office of shogun in the first place. Instead of being given the position simply because he was the one with the best claim by blood rights, Yoshinobu wished to convene an assembly of all the daimyo of Japan, and then have them select the new shogun by universal acclamation. Not all the daimyo, namely those of Choshu and Satsuma, were privy to Yoshinobu's plan, and so these plans for a grand assembly were scrapped. Yoshinobu expected that his posture of uncertainty as to whether or not to accept the position of shogun would prompt his supporters in both the Bakufu and the imperial court to force him to accept it, but such a thing did not occur either. Tokugawa Yoshinobu very well could have just abdicated his responsibilities, were it not for one very powerful ally in the imperial court, Emperor Komei himself. Emperor Komei's chief concern was the return of stability to Japan, and he saw cooperation between the Bakufu and the imperial court as the best way to achieve this. Emperor Komei was especially fond of Yoshinobu in light of his leadership during the Kinmon Incident, when he led the effort to repel the Choshu rebels who fired in the direction of the imperial palace and had endangered his personal safety. The emperor was insistent that Yoshinobu accept the office of shogun, and so on the 10th of January, 1867, Tokugawa Yoshinobu was officially made shogun by the graces of the emperor. He was the 15th Tokugawa shogun, and whether he knew it or not, he would be the last. His tenure as shogun would last for less than a year. The confirmation of Yoshinobu's ascent to the shogunate was one of the last political acts carried out by Emperor Komei, who died on January 30th, 1867, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. The official cause of death was smallpox, but the emperor was only 35 years old and in relatively good health. What's more, he was said to have been of a hardy constitution, and had never encountered a serious illness before. More recent scholarship has posited that the emperor may have been the victim of acute arsenic poisoning, especially given that the symptoms of smallpox and arsenic poisoning are remarkably similar. There is a clear motive for someone to have assassinated the emperor. Sure, he was young and energetic, but he was reactionary to a fault. To the very day he died, he was a staunch supporter of the policies which advocated the cause of Kobu Gatai, the union of court and Bakufu, which put him in the ironic position, as author Romulus Hillsborough points out, of fighting tooth and nail against those who would wish to abolish the shogunate and elevate him to become the sole ruler of Japan. Now the emperor's 15-year-old son and heir, Mutsuhito, was in the parlance of imperial loyalists, a jewel in their hands, somebody that they could manipulate into furthering their own revolutionary goals. In any event, the improbable death of Emperor Komei, who was obstructing revolutionary change at such a pivotal moment in history, warrants suspicion. But who in the emperor's court could have committed this ultimate act of sacrilege? For most historians advancing the poisoning theory, the prime suspect is Iwakura Tomomi, Iwakura received a brief mention in episode 2 of this series, when he convinced Emperor Komei of the political utility of allowing his younger sister to marry the late shogun Tokugawa Iemochi. Iwakura was a big proponent of imperial restoration, and was likely growing quite frustrated with Emperor Komei's constant interference in that project. 
However, while the theory that Iwakura was somehow behind the emperor's death is in keeping with his historical reputation as a backroom schemer, there is no concrete evidence to suggest that this was indeed the case. In any event, the death of Emperor Kome and the subsequent rise of Crown Prince Mutsuhito, soon to become Emperor Meiji, was a pivotal moment in the history of Japan. After all, this series of events is called the Meiji Restoration, for a good reason. Despite the fact that events would fate him to be the last of his line, Tokugawa Yoshinobu was by no means a weak or ineffective leader. Yoshinobu was a man of ambition, ability, and energy, something attested to by his contemporaries. Even foreigners held him in high regard. The British minister to Japan, Harry Parks, once wrote of Yoshinobu, quote, He appears to me to be the most superior Japanese I have yet met, and it is probable that he will make a name for himself in history. End quote. Yoshinobu's domestic opponents saw him as a figure to be at once respected and feared. They had good reason to fear him, because his plans to revive the shogunate's power and prestige would, if they succeeded, make it seem as if Yoshinobu, in the words of Kido Takayoshi, was like Tokugawa Ieyasu reborn. First, let's backtrack a little bit. Immediately upon taking office, Tokugawa Yoshinobu sought to enact a number of drastic reforms. These were not political reforms, such that would clarify the nature of the relationship between the shogun and the emperor, nor were they intended to satisfy the Bakufu's domestic opponents, such as Choshu and Satsuma. Rather, these were economic and military reforms, designed to enrich the shogunate so as to strengthen and modernize the military, and crush dissent. The man at least partially responsible for the authoritarian turn in the Bakufu's domestic policy was Leon Roche, the French consul to Japan. To be sure, Yoshinobu himself recognized the urgent need for reform. As early as October 1866, before he was even confirmed a shogun by the emperor, he was proposing to the senior council a whole slate of reforms such as more meritocratic officer corps, the separation of army and the navy, the firm establishment of trade relations with the foreign powers, and so on. Once he became shogun, Yoshinobu was given a whole slate of advice along these lines by Roche. Under his influence, and with the support of a pro-modernization clique of officials within the Bakufu, preliminary military reforms were carried out, the first of which involved greatly increasing the size of the Bakufu's army, and separating it into infantry, cavalry, and artillery units, as was the standard practice in Western militaries. Relations between France and the Bakufu were greatly strengthened. In February 1867, a French military mission arrived in Edo to help train these new men up to European standards. French experts began to work to build up the Bakufu's industrial base, starting with the construction of Japan's first iron foundry at Yokohama and a new naval dockyard at Yokosuka. Additionally, a Franco-Japanese trading company was founded around this time, whereby the Bakufu was able to purchase modern guns and ships in exchange for reduced prices on Japanese exports such as silk and tea. This is not to say that all of Roche's reforms were military or economic in nature. He also proposed a whole slate of political reforms that would have effectively reformed the shogunate from a feudal regime into a centralized government under Bakufu dominance. But even Yoshinobu and his pro-Western advisors shrunk away from the idea of, of completely abandoning the shogunate's feudal structure that had served them so well for so long. Nevertheless, Yoshinobu's reforms were greatly concerning to the outside domains, especially Choshu, Satsuma, and now re-entering the narrative, Tosa. The final showdown between Yoshinobu and the rebellious daimyo came about in regards to the opening of the port of Hyogo, near the modern Japanese city of Kobe. 
The port of Hyogo was, as per the terms of the Unequal Treaty signed in 1858, to be opened to the foreign powers in January 1868. However, three years prior, the emperor had issued an edict that Hyogo was to remain close to the foreign powers indefinitely. Yoshinobu wished to go ahead with the opening of that port regardless, for two reasons. Firstly, the Bakufu stood to gain materially from the opening of the ports, furthering its newly adopted agenda of enriching the country and strengthening the army. Secondly, and perhaps most importantly, by ordering the port to be opened, the Bakufu would enhance its prestige in the eyes of the foreign powers, and in the process, re-establish itself as the primary authority in Japan on matters of diplomacy. The renegade domains regarded this move by the Bakufu accordingly, and accused it of attempting to circumvent the will of the emperor. In June, the daimyos of the four most powerful domains, excluding Choshu, assembled in Kyoto to discuss a course of action. These men were Shimazu Hisamitsu of Satsuma, Yamanuchi Yodo of Tosa, Date Muneki of Uwajima, and Matsudaira Shungaku of Fukui. On the docket for discussion were three items, the pardoning of Choshu by the imperial court, the opening of the port of Hyogo, and the punishment of the shogun for his unpardonable crime of opposing the will of the emperor. The ultimate hope of Saigo Takamori and Okubo Toshimichi, under whose auspices this conference was arranged, was to have Yoshinobu removed from office and reduced to the status of the other daimyo, thereby effectively transferring power from the Bakufu to the emperor. The Conference of the Four Lords, as it was called, ultimately proved to be a failure. These four lords did not create a united front against Yoshinobu and the Bakufu, given that Date and Yamanuchi did not share in Hisamitsu's strong anti-Bakufu sentiment. They bickered and argued, of all things, over the priority each of these three objectives should have. Ultimately, all four lords departed from the meeting having failed to take down the shogun. Meanwhile, Yoshinobu was able to outmaneuver the four lords, and he pressured the court to give their approval for his plan to open the port of Hyogo. And with that, Yoshinobu was no longer in opposition to the emperor's will. As to the Choshu question, however, no answer was given. The whole affair served to convince Choshu and Setsuma that, so long as Yoshinobu remained in power, there would be no recourse to stop him from enacting his autocratic agenda through diplomatic means. He could only be stopped by armed force. Around this time, Satsuma had begun to formulate a concrete plan to wage war against the Bakufu. Given that Satsuma had 1,000 soldiers in Kyoto at that very moment, they planned to split them into three detachments. The first of these would attack the estates of the Bakufu's allies of the Aizu domain. Another third would attack the Bakufu's military stronghold at Horikawa, just outside Kyoto while the th remaining third of Satsuma troops would stand guard outside the imperial palace while all this was taking place. After that, Satsuma planned to deploy 3,000 more troops from their own domain to attack shogunate forces at Osaka, and to destroy the Bakufu's navy that was stationed there. Meanwhile, the 1,000 remaining Satsuma troops stationed in Edo would attack and occupy the shogun's seat of power at Kofu Castle. Such an attack on three different fronts simultaneously was sure to bring the Bakufu to its knees. Those in Tosa, however, were not so convinced as those in Choshu and Satsuma that Tokugawa Yoshinobu could be stopped through armed force. Sakamoto Ryoma, that Tosa ronin who had helped facilitate the Satsuma-Choshu alliance back in early 1866, was made privy to the alliance's war plans against the shogunate. He recognized that a civil war, that which they were proposing, would be essentially to invite the foreign powers to intervene and immiserate Japan even further.
he still believed that a restoration of the emperor's powers could take place peacefully. In order to facilitate this, he drew up his famous eight-point plan, which he planned to present to the shogun, and the full text of which I will now read. Quote, Point one. Political power of the country should be returned to the imperial court and all decrees issued by the court. Point two. Two legislative bodies, an upper and lower house, should be established and all government measures should be decided on the basis of popular opinion. Point three. Men of ability among the lords, nobles, and people at large should be employed as counselors, and traditional offices of the past, which have lost their purpose, should be abolished. Point four. Foreign affairs should be carried on according to appropriate regulations and worked out on the basis of popular opinion. Point five. Legislation and regulations of earlier times should be set aside and a new and adequate code should be selected. Point six. The navy should be enlarged. Point seven. An imperial guard should be set up to defend the capital. Point eight. The values of gold, silver, and goods should be brought into line with those in other countries. End quote. Crucially missing in Sakamoto Ryoma's eight-point plan was the stipulation that the shogun should be stripped entirely of his wealth and power, or that the feudal structure of the shogunate should be abolished outright. There was only the vague statement that traditional offices of the past which have lost their purpose should be abolished, and that the regulations and laws of earlier times should be set aside. Tokugawa Yoshinobu himself already believed that even if he were to lose the official title of shogun, and the house of Tokugawa would be demoted to the ranks of the other great noble houses, he and his family could still cling on to power in some unofficial capacity under an emperor-led constitutional monarchy, such as the one that Sakamoto envisioned. Perhaps Yoshinobu and his successors could serve as the heads of the new national assembly, acting as the liaison between the court and the upper house, like a sort of prime minister. It has even been suggested that this sort of arrangement was exactly what Sakamoto had in mind, although, unfortunately, he would not live long enough to see his plan enacted. On December 10, 1867, Sakamoto Ryoma and his associate, Nakaoka Shintara, were hiding out at the Omiya Inn in Kyoto, when the two men were called upon by three or four unidentified samurai. When Sakamoto let the men inside, he was slashed in the back by one of the samurai. They then attacked and felled his companion. The two were discovered the next morning by another one of their associates. Sakamoto Ryoma had already died. Nakaoka Shintaro lay all but dead. According to Nakaoka, Sakamoto's last words were an expression of regret that the assassins had caught him off guard. He died two days later. The men's assassins were never concretely identified, although it was widely suspected that the culprits were men of the Shinsengumi the elite counter-terrorism police force founded by the shogun back in 1863. The commander of the Shinsengumi, Kondo Isami, was later credibly accused with orchestrating these assassinations, and was executed for this crime in 1868. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's quickly return back to early 1867, at which point Sakamoto Ryoma was very much still alive, after having just written up his eight-point plan. Sakamoto's idea was to present this plan to the Tosa Daimyo, Yamanuchi Yodo, who would then pass it on to Tokugawa Yoshinobu, along with a request for him to step down from his position as shogun. In March 1867, Sakamoto arranged for a meeting with the Tosa Daimyo's counselor, Goto Shojiro, in Nagasaki. Sakamoto, as a ronin who formerly owed his allegiance to the Tosa domain, had violated the law in leaving Tosa, he was a renegade, and as such, Goto, as an officer of the domain, was duty-bound to arrest him. 
But Godo knew well of Sakamoto's reputation as a respected political thinker, so he listened to what he had to say. As it turned out, Godo agreed with Sakamoto's plan to get the shogun to voluntarily surrender his political power to the imperial court. Goto agreed to present Sakamoto's proposal to his lord, who would then, in turn, present it to the shogun. Surprisingly or not, when Yamanoshi Yodo presented him with the so-called Tosa petition on November 8, 1866, Tokugawa Yoshinobu accepted it, and promptly announces resignation from the office of shogun. That next day, the imperial court issued a secret decree, which I will also read here in its entirety, quote, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, borrowing the authority of successive generations and depending on the strength of his pack of bandits, has wantonly impaired the loyal and the good, and has frequently disobeyed imperial commands. In the end, not fearing to distort the edicts of the late emperor and not caring that he had plunged the populace into an abyss, his all-pervasive evil threatens to overturn the land of the gods. We are the father of the people. If we fail to strike down this traitor, then what excuse will we have to offer the spirit of the late emperor? How shall we make our profound amends to the people? This is the cause of our great grief and indignation. It is unavoidable that the period of mourning should be disregarded. Implement the wishes of our heart and slaughter this traitorous subject, Yoshinobu. When you have speedily accomplished this great deed to serve the nation, you will enable the people to enjoy the lasting peace of the mountains. This is our wish. See that you are prompt in carrying it out." End quote. As author Donald Keane points out, this edict was highly unusual in two respects. One, in its rather incendiary, even violent language, and second, for its first-person perspective, the use of the royal we, despite the fact that it was signed not by the emperor himself, but by three court nobles. For these reasons, historians are more or less unanimous in their belief that this edict was a forgery by none other than Iwakura Tomomi. Choshu and Satsuma, for their parts, did not buy Yoshinobu's apparent surrender of power. They still worried that he planned to cling to his power regardless. Perhaps he would even angle to have his title of shogun restored. What's more, Yoshinobu's resignation did not also result in the immediate abolition of the feudal system or the bakufu. Both institutions remained firmly in place. Although he was no longer the shogun, Yoshinobu was still the head of the house of Tokugawa the most powerful clan in all of Japan, which possessed one-fourth of the land in the entire country. Yoshinobu's loyal vassals, the Fudai Daimyo, were sure to remain on his side no matter what was to come. Additionally, Yoshinobu could still count on the support of a few powerful individuals, such as court officials and daimyos. Lastly, and most importantly, Yoshinobu commanded an army of 15,000 soldiers stationed in Osaka, compared to the some 6,000 troops that Choshu and Satsuma could manage to muster between themselves. Satsuma and Choshu needed to strike first and strike quickly, and now with the emperor's secret decree legitimizing their actions, they plan to launch an attack against the Bakufu. But, as Choshu and Satsuma troops converged on Kyoto, the court got cold feet and rescinded the secret edict, on the grounds that Yoshinobu's voluntary resignation had rendered it inert. The greatest fear of the loyalists was that the imperial palace and the young emperor Meiji, the jewel with which they were to accomplish their revolution, may fall into the hands of Tokugawa Yoshinobu and his pro-shogunate allies. Conspiring with their allies at court, namely Irakura Tomomi, Saigo Takamori and Okubo Tochimichi planned to launch a coup in the imperial palace. They obtained the emperor's consent in this, of course, thanks to the intercession of the boy's grandfather, Nakayama Tadayasu. Early in the morning of January 3rd, 1867, loyalist samurai belonging to five different domains, 
Satsuma, Tosa, Fukui, Hiroshima, and Owari seized all the gates to the Imperial Palace. The coup was entirely bloodless, as the shogunate-aligned samurai who were previously guarding the gates surrendered without a fight. Iwakura and his co-conspirators then hastily drafted an imperial decree, now known to history as the Imperial Proclamation of the Restoration of Imperial Rule of Old. That evening, a meeting was held in the Imperial Palace, where an Emperor Meiji himself read the proclamation restoring his powers aloud. The proclamation formally accepted Yoshinobu's resignation from the office of Shogun, something that the court had henceforth neglected to do, and abolished the institution of the Shogunate in the same breath. The proclamation then went on to state that the emperor intended to, quote, resume his ancient responsibilities for the government because of the need to restore the country's prestige, end quote. Accompanying this proclamation was a further decree abolishing all the former offices of the imperial court and of the bakufu, replacing them with a three-tiered government structure consisting of a chief executive, senior counselors, and junior counselors. Prince Arisugawa, uncle to the emperor, was appointed as the chief executive. Two other imperial princes, three court nobles, and the five daimyo who had carried out the coup d'etat were appointed as the senior counselors. The junior counselors included the three court nobles, including Iwakura Tomomi, and three men of the samurai class from each of the five domains, including both Saigo and Okubo from Satsuma. The first meeting of the new government was held that very night, in the presence of the emperor. The second the floor was open to discussion, Tosa Daimyo Yamanushi Yodo, who was reportedly very drunk at the time, stood up and proposed that Tokugawa Yoshinobu should also be invited into government. When this proposal immediately met with resistance, Yodo launched into a tirade about how the Tokugawa family had provided Japan with over 200 years of peace and prosperity, and how Yoshinobu was an admirable person capable of providing similar government, and lamenting the fact that he had been forced from his office and subsequently expelled from government by the machinations of a small cabal of court nobles pretending to be acting on behalf of the 17-year-old boy emperor. Iwakura countered immediately, accusing Yodo of impropriety in the presence of the emperor. He claimed, albeit disingenuously, that every action leading up to the imperial restoration had been thanks to the extraordinary ability of the young emperor, and to imply that he was somehow taking advantage of the emperor was massively disrespectful. Accused of impropriety in the presence of the emperor, Yodo realized his mistake and began to backtrack. But then Matsudara Yoshinaga, daimyo of Echizen and a junior counselor in the imperial restoration government, spoke up in defense of Yodo and of the Tokugawa. With the clock fast approaching midnight and the group no closer to consensus on what course of action should be taken in regards to the former shogun, the emperor declared that the group take a short recess. During the recess, Saigo Takamori, who had been standing guard outside, commented to Irakura that it would take but a sword to the throat to end the debate. Sensing growing hostility among the opposing party, Yodo's minister, Godo Shojiro, suggested that the daimyo stand down, which he did once the meeting reconvened. Ultimately, when Irakura proposed that Tokugawa Yoshinobu be allowed to participate in government only after he surrendered his title and a decent portion of his lands, none raised their voices in objection. The next day, Matsudaro Shungaku and Tokugawa Yishikatsu, daimyo of Owari, brought word of the court's decision to Yoshinobu in person. As the daimyo's retinues approached Yoshinobu's stronghold of Nijo Castle in Kyoto, Yoshinobu's guards heaped all sorts of verbal abuse upon them, calling them, among other things, Satsuma bandits. Yoshinobu himself was much more evenly tempered. He said that he respected the court's decision, and that he told the two daimyo that he had no personal objections to relinquishing his rank and lands. But, he said, 
He worried that if these decisions were enacted immediately, then his direct vassals, namely the domains of Aizu and Kuwana, may react poorly. He asked for more time to announce his decision. The two daimyo departed the castle that day, considering that their meeting with Yoshinobu was a diplomatic victory. In reality, the proposal that Yoshinobu relinquish his wealth and power seems to have steeled his resolve to resist the machinations of this new government. On January 14th, Yoshinobu held a meeting with representatives from England, France, Italy, Prussia, the Netherlands, and the United States in Osaka Castle. He informed them that while there had been a shakeup in terms of Japan's government, he and the Bakufu were still going to handle foreign affairs, as the new government led by the emperor as of yet lacked the capacity to do so. Yoshinobu was not lying when he said this. The provisional government was scrambling to organize their administration. The issue was that those who had made up the new government were mainly nobles of the imperial court, who had absolutely zero practical experience in political matters, having been sequestered long in the court of Kyoto, far away from the halls of actual power. Yoshinobu's decision to go behind the new government's back and relay this message to the foreign powers was a move of realpolitik, but it was also indicative of Yoshinobu's intention to defy the new imperial government. Three days later, Yoshinobu defiantly announced to the imperial court that he did not recognize the Declaration of Imperial Restoration and that he would not obey the orders of the imperial government. He demanded to be restored to the office of shogun immediately. His argument as to why this should be the case followed, in broad terms, the arguments put forth by Yamanuchi Yodo at the first government meeting held earlier that month. The Tokugawa had provided more than 200 years of peace and stability, Yoshinobu was a capable man who intended to provide just governance to Japan, this new government was a farce, being composed of duplicitous court nobles and rebellious daimyo who were manipulating to do their bidding, etc. and so forth. In Edo, fighting between the imperial government's supporters and the supporters of the former shogun and the bakufu broke out almost immediately. Edo was struck by a wave of looting, arson, and other such violent crimes. The worst such incident occurred on January 18th, when Edo Castle partially caught fire. The bakufu officials soon discovered that these crimes were being carried out by ronin, who were using the Setsuma estate in Edo as a base of operations. It was later revealed that they had been doing this with the full knowledge and permission of Satsuma officials. In fact, they intended for the secret to get out, to provoke the former shogun into taking aggressive action against Satsuma, to ensure that the shogunate would be seen as the aggressor in the upcoming conflict. It worked. Tokugawa Yoshinobu, enraged at Satsuma's insolence, gave the order to his troops to attack the Satsuma estate. The ensuing clash between the ronin and the bakufu troops at the Satsuma estate in Edo ended with several dead on both sides and the building razed to the ground. Not content with this, Yoshinobu gave the order to his army of 15,000 to mobilize for a march on Kyoto. His aim was to dislodge the duplicitous new government and free the emperor from their clutches. In the second aim, he was almost sure to fail, as from the moment the first report of Bakufu mobilization reached Kyoto, Emperor Meiji was disguised as the lady of the court and escorted westwards to safety. Shogunate forces encountered imperial forces at Toba Fushimi, on the southern approach to Kyoto. The imperial forces consisted mainly of troops from Choshu and Satsuma, although there was a smaller contingent of Tosa men there as well. The imperial forces were much smaller than the shogunates. They were outnumbered about three to one, but they had a secret weapon, the imperial standard, a sixteen-pointed chrysanthemum flower, covered in gold against the red backdrop. This was to showcase the fact that they were fighting in an official capacity as the army of the emperor. 
the prospect of fighting against the Emperor's will was certain to demoralize the shogunate troops, who had as much reverence for the Emperor as any other Japanese person would have at the time. Additionally, the Imperial Army was officially led by a prince of the Imperial blood, Prince Yoshiaki, who granted their cause further legitimacy. The prince was young, only 23 years old, and had no combat experience to speak of. The actual burden of military leadership fell to Saiko Takamori. The Imperial Army, in addition to their superior morale, strong leadership, and the moral high ground, possessed another advantage, superior technology and superior organization. The Choshu troops were equipped with modern weaponry, including state-of-the-art rifles of French design, a few Armstrong guns, and even a Gatling gun, a prototype machine gun that was capable of firing over 200 rounds of ammunition per minute. Satsuma's troops were a mix of mostly modern soldiers with modern equipment trained along western lines, and more traditional samurai soldiers armed with swords and spears. The shogunate forces, on the other hand, were quite disorganized. For one, they did not have the strong leadership that the imperial side did. Tokugawa Yoshinobu himself was not present on the battlefield that day, instead directing strategic operations from a stronghold at Osaka Castle. He delegated command of the army to one Takenaka Shigekata, his loyal vassal. The 15,000-strong shogunate army consisted of a main bakufu force, which itself also possessed modern weapons and was trained according to Western standards thanks to French assistance. The bakufu had also mobilized the Shinsengumi, the shogun's paramilitary samurai police force. Alongside the modern bakufu troops were the soldiers of Yoshinobu's allies, Aizu and Kuwana. These men looked, for the most part, as if they had come straight off the battlefield of Sekigahara in 1600, clad in samurai armor, and armed with swords, spears, and the occasional antiquated musket. As I said earlier, the shogunate army en route to Kyoto encountered the imperial army on the road between Toba and Fushimi, just south of the city. The head of the shogunate army vanguard informed the imperial forces that they were en route to Kyoto to deliver a message to the emperor, and if they were hampered in any way in this effort, they would respond with overwhelming force. The response of the Satsuma troops was to unleash a volley of fire on the shogunate force. The first shots of the Boshin War, as it has come to be known to history, had been fired. As Satsuma's cannons let loose on the shogunate flanks, a cannonball blew up a cache of gunpowder next to shogunate general Takenaka Shigekata. The explosion startled Takenaka's horse and sent it bolting, him atop it, past line after line of confused and demoralized shogunate troops. The attack of the Satsuma's troops sent the shogunate lines into further disarray. Out of desperation, one Aizu commander ordered his spearmen to charge towards the Satsuma riflemen. They did so valiantly, although they were gunned down to a man before they were able to reach their opponents. The Battle of Toba Fushimi dragged on for three days, with both sides fighting with great vigor and courage. On the third day, Saigo Takamori decided that it was time to deploy the secret weapon. He ordered his troops to retrieve the Imperial banners from storage and raise them aloft on the field of battle. At first, nobody on either side recognized these strange new flags being flown by the Imperial forces, as they had not been seen on the battlefields of Japan in nearly 700 years. But, as word spread through both camps that it was the standard of the Emperor that the men of Choshu and Satsuma were now flying, the shogunate forces predictably began to lose heart, despairing at the prospect of opposing the Emperor. As shogunate forces began to retreat from the battlefield, the imperial troops drew their swords and charged after them, running them down. The shogunate forces attempted to regroup at Yodo Castle to the southwest, where the daimyo, Inaba Masakuni, was thought to be sympathetic to the shogunate's cause. But when they arrived at the castle, they found the gates shut to them. 
Inaba had sensed the way that the winds were blowing, and switched his allegiance from the shogun to the emperor at the very last moment. The demoralized shogunate forces then made the decision to retreat to Yoshinobu's stronghold at Osaka Castle. As they trudged westward, they were subjected to another betrayal. The soldiers of the Su Domain, assigned to guard the shogunate army's western flanks, opened fire on their former allies as they attempted to pass through the village of Yamazaki. On the third night of fighting, by the time most had realized that the imperial forces would emerge victorious at Tobofushimi, Yoshinobu held a war council at Osaka Castle. Had the shogunate forces won the battle, they could have pressed on to Kyoto, and, with the imperial court at their mercy, they could have pressured the court into declaring them to be the legitimate army of the emperor, and that Choshu and Suma were the rebels against the imperial will. Instead, the victory of the imperial forces at the Battle of Tobafushimi reified their legitimacy as the army of the emperor, and Yoshinobu was once more officially declared an enemy of the imperial court. Realizing the magnitude of this defeat, Yoshinobu decided to abandon the entire western half of the country. He secretly resolved, along with a handful of his closest advisors, to escape Edo aboard the Bakufu frigate the Kayomaru. However, the Kayomaru was late in arriving at Edo Bay, and as the Imperial forces approached the city, Yoshinobu and his retinue were forced to hide aboard the American warship the USS Iroquois as they waited for their ship to arrive. In the meantime, as the Imperial army reached the castle, the remnants of the shogunate's army in the fort fled, disorganized in all directions. The imperial forces seized the castle without a fight and proceeded to raise it to the ground. After having stowed away for two hours aboard the American vessel, the Kayomaru arrived at Osaka. Yoshinobu and his retinue set off for Edo, watching as Osaka Castle burned behind them. This was a great symbolic defeat for the Tokugawa, as Osaka Castle was the site of the 1615 Siege of Osaka, where Yoshinobu's ancestor Tokugawa Ieyasu had firmly cemented his dominance over the country. It goes without saying that the siege of Osaka was a great victory for the imperial forces of Choshu and Satsuma. Their victory had secured their legitimacy as the imperial army, and now many of the other clans would rally to their banner to defeat the traitorous Yoshinobu and his allies, who were now designated as enemies of the emperor. From a strategic perspective, their victory at Tobofushimi secured for them the entire western half of the country, as Yoshinobu was absconded off to Edo. But, while Yoshinobu and his allies may have been dealt a heavy blow, they were no means out of the fight. It would remain to be seen what Yoshinobu's next move might be once he reached Edo. And that is where I believe things for this episode. Who would emerge victorious in the Boshin War? Would it be the Imperial Loyalists of Choshu, Satsuma, and their affiliated allies? Or did Yoshinobu have a trick up his sleeve that would ensure the Tokugawa dominance would endure in Japan? You'll have to tune in again in two weeks to find out what happens next. If you like this episode, please consider leaving the show a favorable review on whichever podcast platform you listen to so that the podcast can reach a wider audience. If you have any questions regarding the content of this episode, or about the show in general, or if you have anything else you'd like me to hear, you can address these things to me via the show's email, historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Additionally, you can message me on Twitter or Facebook, links to which will be in the episode's description. Also, if you like this episode, please consider helping out the show financially by either becoming a supporter on Patreon, or by purchasing some used books from me off eBay. Anyway, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Liam Connor, signing off.
Oh, 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 oh,